the Bible. It's the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. This sacred book is living and active and contains all that's needed for life and godliness. Stay with American Family Radio for the next hour as we study God's Word and take your Bible questions. Welcome to Exploring the Word. The Gospel of Mark is, in my opinion, just such a riveting book of the Bible to read. All of the Bible is profitable. It's the Word of God. The book of Mark is uh, a, a thrill to read because it is so full of action, and you'll see these words like, immediately they went, and after this he said that. And Bert, as you and I are getting into the Gospel of Mark, it's really putting me in the the Easter spirit. You know, in December we talk about getting in the Christmas spirit, but as we approach the time where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, I'm reading Mark and getting in I guess for lack of a better word, I'm saying I'm getting in the Easter spirit because it reminds me of what he did that our souls would be saved for whosoever believes in him. This is very meaningful, very special content, isn't it? It really is. And again, since Mark doesn't cover the incarnation specifically, uh, he gets to Easter quicker than than uh, Matthew, Luke, or John. And mm-hmm. so we will do that. And uh, in chapter 8, we are at a place that's pivotal. Uh, when we come to the confession of uh, you are the Christ by Peter, it changes everything around because from that point on, Jesus has just been out of the you know Judean area. He had been out of the Nazareth area. He had been out of the Galilee area, even into Sidon and, and so forth and, and Tyre. And now he comes back into the northern part of of the um, Galilean area, and he sets his face toward Jerusalem. We'll get to that, and uh, but chapter eight is that pivotal chapter, and it's significant that it is right in the middle of the book of Mark. And mm-hmm. so, and what we've heard so far is, I mean, just event after event after event. Chapter seven, he spends some of his time sharing much of the conversation of Jesus. But now he goes back into chapter 8 of feeding the 4,000, the Pharisees seeking a sign, and a blind man is healed, and then Peter's confession of Christ, you are the Christ. So, Alex, uh, I I love Mark chapter 8 because it's kind of, okay, we've been doing this, but let's make this transition when he says, I must go to Jerusalem, and there Mm. I will suffer many things. So that's where we're headed in the Gospel of Mark. Well, you know, uh, Paul, Peter, they were willing to do things that were inevitable, and certainly Jesus was too, whether it be the need to go through Samaria, the need to go to Jerusalem. You know, I think about in Acts how Paul said that he was set to go to Jerusalem not knowing what things would befall him there. And Bert, isn't part of the Christian life uh doing those things it might be out of our comfort zone it might stretch our faith but doing the things that we simply must do because the lord compels us to do them and they they bear fruit but um just like our lord and the apostles they had to do the things that they must do it is true and again listen the last person that you'd ever expect to be a preacher uh, to be speaking on the radio uh, in my early years, it was Bert Harper uh, huh. stuttering and stammering. I got a part in the play in the fourth grade. Back then, each grade had a play. And in the fourth right. grade, there was this guy named Herman, and he stuttered all the time. Ms. Uh, Velma Strange, she assigned the parts, and she said, Bert, you've got the part of Herman. He stutters. Uh, you won't have to fake it. You just do it. And uh, so, Alex, uh, God is an amazing God whom he chooses Amen. to do what he will. And, again, out of your comfort zone, you better believe it. And huh. uh, you listen, but guess what he does? He blesses even in that, doesn't he? He really does. You know, in Mark chapter 8, and I love these words, it says, In those days the multitude being very great, having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now been with me three days, and I have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for diverse of them came from far. You know, uh, back there at 
uh, in verse in chapter seven, it talked about how he couldn't hardly go anywhere. People pressed into the houses. They just came even to touch the hem of his garment to get healed. So this multitude, verse two of chapter eight, multitude and this plurality of people. So the disciples answered, how can a man satisfy all these people out here in the wilderness? And so Jesus asked a question. And Bert, um, by the way, isn't it, I think, just fascinating how very often a, a miracle or a teaching moment is initiated by the asking of a question. And in verse 5, there is one such question. There really is. And Jesus, one of the best things you can do when you're studying the Gospels, just go through and look at the questions that Jesus would ask. They were always leading something to believe or getting people to think through. Those that were enemies and they would try to ask him trick questions, he would ask them, and I, forgive me of my vernacular here, a trickier question, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they would try to trick him, but he would ask them a more of a eventful trick question that they did not have any idea. So Jesus was able to do this, but this question, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples and set them before the multitude. And they had a few small fish, and he blessed them, set them, and they were filled. Isn't that a beautiful—that's the same thing happened with the 5,000. The 4,000 were filled— the 5,000 were filled, Alex. They were different, and when you get over into verses 18 through 21, Jesus will make sure everybody knows this is not Mark just retelling the story about 5,000. This is a whole different event, isn't it? It, it is, and was that back in Mark chapter 6? Yes, it was. Yeah, so there were two feedings, two miraculous feedings, and so they've got seven loaves, and he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks. I think that's just very appropriate. Bert, uh, we don't hardly sit down to have a stick of gum without saying the blessing. I just, <laughs> you know, I, I believe. He is the blesser, the isn't he? He's the he blesser. Is. We need to recognize him. Yeah. Amen. He broke the bread, gave to his disciples to set before them, and they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes he blessed and commanded them to set also before them. So they did eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left, seven baskets, and they had that had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Again, a miraculous provision and I would say our Savior is miraculously providing for the masses and for each of us even to this day. I agree. And there's a significant difference here. The word basket, I, they're still translated that way. The basket that's used in the feeding of the 5,000 is a smaller basket. This is a larger basket and uh, seven and, and 12 left over. But mm-hmm. each time, you know, you find this leftover uh, Alex, I find that unique too. They were filled, yes. and then they had that which is left over. Is again, you, you're the one that always usually says that. I don't want to spiritualize too much, but yeah. let me spiritualize a little bit Come too on. much here. Yes. You know, when Jesus is real in your life, he can fill you, but he can fill you full to running over. That's the whole idea. Have you ever heard preachers, uh, pr- uh, people tell the pastor, my some of my professors in seminary and in college both said this about preaching. Preach from the overflow. In other words, y- you, yes. and then I heard someone say, this is, this is what you do to get ready to preach or teach or share. He said, you read yourself full, you pray yourself hot, and you just get up and burn for Jesus. I Amen. never will forget that, preaching from the overflow, and here seven baskets full left over. Uh, I'd say it was an overflow, wouldn't you? Amen. Well, I read that, I guess, 30 years ago, Bert, I read that in a Billy Graham book, Preach from the Overflow. And if you're a Sunday school teacher or or just a, a, a Christian and you want to be a witness, keep your cup full, you know, keep your lamp trimmed and burning, as it says, so that there is something to flow out of you. Now, let me just say this. They took in, in Mark 8, 9, and 10, and they uh, they were a lot of, uh, 
surplus. It reminds me, and I'm going to spiritualize a little bit, <laughs> in John six twelve. after this, that Jesus said, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Let me say this, be one who is willing for God's glory to pick up the fragments, that none be lost. And I'm talking about reaching out to the people that maybe nobody else goes and speaks to, and just giving that gesture and that smile or helping somebody. Let me say, we can be surprised at how much God will use us when we're willing to do the thing that maybe nobody else thinks about doing. I mean, anybody would do something grandiose, and if if you could be on the world stage. But let me say, obedience and fidelity and love for the Savior, I think, is not proven in the limelight, but back in the shadows where you think nobody's watching. Uh, but verse 10 is one of these action words in the Gospel of Mark. And straightway, uh, right after the, there's no dead air. Bert, in radio, we have a thing where, like, if it goes quiet, we say that's dead air, yeah. which we don't like. Uh, there's no dead air in the Gospel of Mark. It's always going from one action-packed uh, scenario to the next, isn't it? It really is. In the New King James that I have immediately, and again, that word straightforward in, in King James, 42 times it appears. So you really? can see, yes, 42 times you find that. And so immediately what happened? And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. Now, I, I just could not help but underline the word the Pharisees came out. <laughs> they yeah. were ready and waiting, Alex. And when this opportunity came, they came out. That's the wording. And began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now, listen, what more signs could they want? I mean, right. look what he's done. And that's what was studied in the book of Mark. One thing right after another healing right after another, feeding the 5,000, the 4,000, uh, raising the dead. Uh, so much is going, oh, we want a sign from heaven. Alex, there was a sign that would be given when Jesus Christ died on the cross in three days, he rose again. Guess yeah. what? That's, That's didn't, the, that didn't satisfy them either, did it? No, it didn't. Well, here's the thing. It says they're in this region called Dalmanutha, which means in the shepherd's way. Jesus wasn't here to do magic tricks or just to show off with miraculous. He is the, the good shepherd to be our savior, but they didn't get that. Well, stay tuned, folks. It's Exploring the Word with Bert Harper, Alex McFarlane. We're in Mark chapter 8, plus we're going to get your phone calls, your Bible questions. We're going to be right back after this. Stay with us. This is Pause to Pray, a chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Ann Phillips, Administrator of the United States Maritime Administration. She advises the Secretary of Transportation on commercial maritime matters and oversees the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Psalm 104.25 reminds us that the sea is the Lord's creation. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Ann Phillips as she manages maritime commerce for our country. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. If exercise were easy, everybody would do it. But Dr. Tony Evans says strength and endurance come at a cost, both physically and spiritually. He'll explain today as we spend two minutes with Tony. The first time, I don't know how many weightlifters we have here, people go work out, you know, with weights, but the first time you go to work out with weights isn't going to be fun, okay? Because when you come back home, you're going to hurt. Your arms going to be sore, your legs going to be sore, and if you limit it to that one time, Okay, you're going to quit. You're going to say, this hurts. You know why it's hurting? It's hurting because your muscles have not been used to being exercised. The way to get over the hurt is to hurt them some more. You know? You got to go back and lift some more. You got to go back and work out some more. Because then you'll get used to it. It has to become a way of life. 
If you want to see the power of God, if I want to see the power of God, then being in his presence is to be a way of life. And some of us want to audit the Christian life. We want to come to church and get all the instruction. We don't want to do none of the work and want to know how come we don't get a grade for the course. How come we don't escalate up the ladder? What am I challenging you to do? I'm challenging you and me to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do with what I've learned so that you can disclose yourself to me so that I'll have the fruit of your blessing in my life because of what? Obedience. That means you're going to have to decide to make an investment spiritually and no longer waste time by hearing things that you intend not to do anything with. There's no greater payoff than following Christ. Isn't it time you experienced the strength and security of a life fully committed to the Lord? Check out Tony's CD series, Pursuing Christ, available online at TonyEvans.org. Then join us next time for Two Minutes with Tony. Welcome back to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. Somehow you see through my heart and you welcome me with open arms just as I am. Amen. I hope you know Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you're trying to get good enough to get saved, uh, I just tell you, you'll never get good enough. God takes us as we are, just as I am. But you, it's a broken vessel. It's one that's sorrowful, repentant of their sin and coming and turning to Christ. And if you need help to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, we have partners. And I love to give this number. It is mm. 1-800-NEED-HIM. And I, I just want to say, Alex, everybody needs him. Some of us have him. Yeah. He's come into our lives, and he's taken up residence in our lives and lives in us through the person of the Holy Spirit, but those that do not, you can go to 1-800-NEED-HIM, and you'll find a friend there who will talk with you, pray with you, and help you. That is good news that that's available, isn't it? Oh, it's the great news. Really, it's the only news. And we are in Mark chapter 8. Hey, by the way, we will get to Bible questions in just a little while. The number, if you want to jot this down, is 888-589-8840. Maybe you've never called into Exploring the Word and you've got a Bible question today. We would love to entertain your Bible question, and you might be the first one in the queue, so 888-589-8840. But the Pharisees are always coming around to accuse, and they're, they're demanding a sign, like a, like a magic trick almost. But that wasn't what the Lord was here to do. I mean, he did miracles, and that validated his Messiahship, but he says, uh, verse 12, Why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall be no sign given unto this generation. He left them, and entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, Take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. They reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. Bert, is it me, or is this almost humorous? I mean, <laughs> maybe they had not packed food on this boat trip because they had just seen two miraculous feedings. And I don't know, maybe one of them said, well, look, if we wind up needing food, Jesus will miraculously provide it. Now, you know, bread has yeast, and yeast goes throughout the loaf. A little pinch of yeast is enough to make the whole dough rise. But the Pharisees had religion, but not a relationship. That is they, so true. Yep. They wanted the power of God without really uh, being connected to the shepherd. And I mentioned that they're in this region called In the Shepherd's Way. So verse 16, and this is where I want to hand it off to you, Bert. They reasoned among themselves, saying, you know, he's talking this way because we have no bread. And Jesus knew it, and he said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive, neither understand, has your heart yet hardened? So what point is he trying to get across, Bert? Well, I, I just want to tell you, if you'll read the head, he kind of lets them know their spiritual understanding is darkened completely. I see them committing the sin of presumption. Okay, he fed the 5,000, he'll feed the 4,000. We don't need to bring any of the leftovers of seven with us of uh, the baskets. I found that funny too, Alex. 
that they'd had seven baskets left over and they got none of it to bring with them to the other side. They left it over there. And again, no preparation, sin or presumption. But Jesus takes this learning opportunity concerning bread and food about leaven. And the Pharisees had come out looking for a sign. I think you have to put all this together. And he says, they will leaven little, a little doubt, uh, a little, uh, I I would say showmanship. Oh, oh, they want me to do something. He'd already run that race uh, when he defeated Satan uh, there in the wilderness when he said, no, I'm not going to jump off a pinnacle for you. You know, he had already won that in his heart. He said, this is not the kind of ministry I'm going to have where it says, look at me, I can do all that. So this leaven is always been used as sin. It is a, it's used in a point of view saying a little sin, and what does it do? It ruins the whole thing. What was it? One, rap, one rotten apple will run, uh, ruin the whole barrel of apples. Yeah. And so, yeah. Alex, that's what leaven does. That's what sin does. It must go, and you must nip it. I'm going to use a Barney Fife. You got to nip it in the bud. Yes. Hey, and, and let me throw something out here. By the way, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read the Bible, uh, you are reading a miraculous story. Now, Bert, I even, a few years ago, I was talking to a pastor who is a relatively conservative pastor. And the reason I want to point something out is that you and I are living in a time of what we call an anti-supernatural bias, that the the miraculous, even professed Christians, can sort of minimize the, the miraculous. And I, I mean, nowadays, if you're at a pastor's conference, and I'm talking among relatively conservative, I mean, if you believe a literal six-day creation, as I do, as Bert does, if you literally believe in Noah and the ark, I do, I know Bert does, I mean, there are professed conservatives that they minimize some of the miraculous. So I was talking to this pastor, and he said, well, you know, there was only one feeding of the multitudes. that um, may, they, they split it into two to make it look bigger than it was, but there was probably only one. No, there was two. Now, even liberals generally accept the Gospel of Mark. Well, look down here. In verse 19 and uh, verse 20, Christ himself affirms that there was two miraculous feedings of the multitudes, Bert. Do you see this? He does. He talks about the first one, five loaves, seven Among loaves. five thousand, yeah. yeah. Two fish, a few fish, different baskets. You ask it, uh, yeah. Actually, Alex, go ahead. And, and just the reason that I wanted to point this out, and I don't mean to belabor this point, but um, let's take the Bible for what it says, and we see God acting in human history— we see God doing miracles, and even the Lord himself references that he fed 5,000. Then verse 20, he fed 4,000. So I take that. I think Jesus would be the authority on how many times he fed a multitude. I agree with you, and he has those men to say how much. Twelve, that was their comment in verse 19. Seven in verse 20. And uh, he said, how is it you do not understand He's still getting them to say, you can depend upon me. I will see you through. And then he came to Bethesda, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. This is going to be different than any of the other healings that we've ever had. So I'm going to read it straight through all the way through verse 26. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now, Alex, this is the only time we have a record of that Jesus did something and then added to it far as the complete restoration. Uh, I don't know everything that this is telling, you know, but I, I do, I, I, I'll tell you what it's not, because it's not Jesus not being able to do it the first time, you know? Right, I know right. it's not that. I think oh, he's course, trying to right. teach you. I think he's trying to teach us something. Do you have any ideas on that? Well, you know, I'm thinking about this now. They're at Beth Seda, and the, the word... 
In fact, folks, I, I wish you could uh, overhear some of the phone calls that Bert and I have together because we earlier today you and I were talking about geography, right? Yeah. Well, Bethsaida means house full of fish. Yeah. Isn't that an interesting it thing? Is. Now, bread and fish, um, being fishers of men, very often fish can connote uh, a harvest of souls, right? And Jesus is the bread of life. Well, he goes to Bethsaida, house full of fish, and there's this blind man that gets healed. And um, I've always, oh my goodness, I've pondered verse 24, what the man, as he was being healed, he said, I see men as trees walking. And Jesus uh, completely restores the man's sight, and the man can see clearly. Bert, uh, for one thing, Jesus is all about winning souls. Now, I don't mean to spiritualize too much. This was almost a two-part miracle, wasn't it? And again, clearly we know it's not for lack of ability. I mean, the one who could speak the universe into existence, Jesus could heal instantaneously. Let me say, conversion and Christian growth is is very often a process. Um, There has to be that moment when you turn to Christ and you're born again. Uh, Salvation is an event. Christian growth is most certainly a journey, a process, isn't it, Bert? It is. And here, let me just share, again, there's a lot of questions I have about this, but I would say this. This demonstrates Jesus' power. He, it shows you if he only does it halfway where men are left, you know, we, mm-hmm. Jesus saves how? Completely. It's not a partial. It's not halfway. Alex, you travel a lot on an airplane. Have you ever gotten halfway in an airplane, or do you have to stay out or get all the way in? You're all the way. You're <laughs> either on it or you're not. Okay. Coming to Christ is all the way in. If you only do it partially, I want to just tell you, you're not in. You'll be drug out. I know this is a horrible thought and a horrible remembrance. It it was when all those people, American soldiers, were getting out of Afghanistan, and those people were on the wings trying to hold on, and when the airplane took off, they were falling off. Mm. You, you cannot get halfway in and you got to get in Christ. It's all the way in. You will not see clearly. It will be confusing. So Christ again restores him. And he's, now notice what he did. He took him outside the town. That was interesting to do this. And, and because they said, let's seek a sign. And he says, I, no sign's going to be given to you. So he takes him out of side, town, uh, that town outside. And he says, don't go back. Go to your home. It, obviously, this man's home wasn't in Bethesda. It was somewhere else. And so he goes out of town and tells no one. Verse 27. Now, Jesus, yeah. this is the pivotal point, And I wanted to make sure we got this today. This is where it all turns around from chapter 8, verse 27, all the way to the end. He's headed toward Jerusalem. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. That's way up north. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, You are the Christ. Then he charged them that they should tell no one about him yet. I'm adding the word yet, okay? And he began to teach them. After he did this, and after he asked them, what did he begin to teach them? That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, Alex, this is the first time in the book of Mark, this is also in Matthew, that he says these words. And he's going to say them two more times in the book of Mark. But this is the turning point. And I've got this highlighted in my Bible, the turning point. Jesus is now setting his, setting his face toward Jerusalem. And that's mm-hmm. where he's going. He's, I think it says this. After, after Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, I really believe he said, okay, you've got it. Now I can take you to Jerusalem, and there I can complete the job that God's given me to do. Do you see mm. that parallel? Do you see that? Powerful, powerful. And of course, this is the question of, of every life that everybody, not only should you answer, you will answer. 
Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter answered and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here's an amazing thing about how God uses flawed people. I mean, Peter is shining brightly in verse 29, but uh, by uh, verse 32, (laughs) Peter... uh, I'm sorry to laugh. What a turnaround. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. If you think, oh, how could God love me? I, I blow it. I mess up. Okay, Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, verse 29, uh, Peter is almost sounding like John the Baptist. But then Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and uh, says, you know, Lord, I'm not going to let them do anything to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter in verse 33. Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of man. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, that's a pretty stern rebuke. Peter's just trying to show love for Christ. But apparently, Peter had an agenda in his heart that only the Lord knew about. And, I mean, this very stern rebuke tells me that at least at this point, and now hang with me, I've got a thought here. Peter's full knowledge of the Messiah uh, and that it's all about serving the Messiah, not any agenda for ourselves. Remember the blind man said, I see men as trees walking. The man's grasp of things was only partial. Bert, I think Peter's grasp of the gospel and the Savior at this point is only partial. I agree with you. Now, I don't know exactly what he said. It doesn't tell you. But he says it after Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. These are his words. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the elders. I'm going to be rejected by the priest. I'm going to be rejected by the scribes and be killed after the three days. I can just imagine Peter taking Jesus said, now, listen, Jesus, we don't want to do it this way. There's a better yeah. way. I mean, come on now, Jesus. Uh, yeah. you, you are the Christ. You are the king. We've seen you do this. Isn't it time for you to do this? And Jesus rebuked him. And these are the same words he used when he rebukes anything Satan has. And so this is a severe rebuke. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Alex, let me say one more time. Time is running out. It's amazing who Satan will. You don't have to be lost for Satan to use you, especially with discouraging words, you know? Well, that's true, folks. We're uh, getting towards the end of Mark chapter 8, but when we come back after this brief break, we're going to pull up the phones and take your calls and your questions on today's edition of Exploring the Word. Hope you're praying for the folks in Nashville and Mississippi. Hope you're uh, engaged in the show and call us, 888-589-8840. What does the American Family Association stand for? AFA believes that all men and women, whether in private or public, should be free to exercise their faith without hindrance from the government. These values and more are part of our mission to inform, equip, and activate individuals to strengthen the moral foundations of our culture. We also support the church. We want to be a leading organization in biblical worldview training for cultural transformation. Thank you for standing with us. Hannah's Heart a half-hour program specifically designed to encourage Christian couples walking through infertility and miscarriage. This is not a show that's going to promise you a certain outcome, Mm -hmm. but this is a show that says however God answers your cry, we know that He's enough. Hannah's Heart with Ann Cockrell and Kendra White each Saturday afternoon at 5 Central on American Family Radio. You can find the podcast at AFR.net. Here's Steve Tiber, president of Eight Days of Hope. The fastest growing crime in America and across the world is sex trafficking. We're talking about millions of lives, even children. Did you know the average age of a child who's trafficked in America is 12 years old? Eight Days of Hope has decided to be a part of the solution with the body of Christ around the country. It's amazing to think that there's 13,000 animal shelters in our country, and that's a good thing, but there's less than 1,000 safe places for people who've been rescued from sex trafficking to go to. I know it's not a fun subject to talk about, but God has called the church to take its blinders off and end this human tragedy. 
At 8 Days of Hope, we're going to partner with an existing ministry, and for 14 days, we'll bring skilled volunteer professionals to renovate, rebuild, or remodel facility so that more can be rescued and receive the emotional, physical, and spiritual help they need. For more information on how you can get involved with our Safe House construction ministry, please email us at safehouse at 8daysofhope.com or go to our website, 8daysofhope.com. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Many who oppose Christianity target their hostility on our foundation, the Bible. They say it's unreliable because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are contradictory accounts of the creation story. In actuality, the two chapters are complementary and not contradictory. When Jesus was asked about marriage, he quoted from both chapters 1 and 2 in saying that he made them both to be male and female in the beginning. And for this cause shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. Genesis 1 is an overview of the creation story. Genesis 2 is an up-close examination of day 6. If Jesus relies on them both, so can we. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. American Family Radio. Welcome back to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is alive. Jesus is sufficient. And praise God, Jesus is faithful. Well, welcome back to Exploring the Word. Alex and Bert here, so honored that you're listening. The number, if you've got a Bible question, we would love to hear from you, and we will do our best to give you a good, factual, biblical answer. It's 888-589-8840. And by the way, you can listen to this and all other archived shows at AFR.net. And uh, Bert, um, yesterday you had a great idea, and I think it was so wonderful how the Lord led you, but we prayed for the whole show. And yes, if you want to listen to yesterday's program, um, I just felt like it was very meaningful, Bert, given what our nation was feeling and going through. Uh, that was Good, good work, my friend, being led by the Holy Spirit for that show yesterday. I, I just felt impressed to that after uh, your friend and uh, I know him, Carlton was on and prayed. And man, Carlton that Gerald, was, yeah, yeah, it was so great. And I said, I believe and I, I trust that the Lord was. Every once in a while you say, you know, well, uh, a lot of times I just say, Lord, I think this is what you want. I'm going to do it. And I, after it's over, you know. And then after it was over, yes, this was of the Lord. Well, Alex, we got a lot of folks online. Let's get to as many of them as we can. Is that okay? Yes, sir. Let's go to North Carolina and talk to Randy. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. Hi, how are you? Doing well Good. today. <clears throat> yeah, I had a question. So um, when I, sometimes I talk to other brothers and sisters in Christ, and they say, you know, to be ready for Jesus's return. Um, it could happen at any second. It could happen today. And it just kind of confuses me when I read in the book of second Thessalonians. Um, it seems like there's a couple things that have to take place beforehand. One, one of them being the revealing of the, uh, of the lawless one, which I would assume is the antichrist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Well, do you know, uh, every now and then you hear about, um, the imminence of Christ's return, imminent, meaning uh, in any moment. Uh, I think the way to understand this, and, and I'm going to be clear that all, if you look at all of the eschatological passages, Old and New Testament, there's a lot, and it is complicated. Here is the point of orthodoxy on which all Christian believers agree. Christ is coming back and he will rule and reign victoriously, righteously, joyfully. Christ will rule the world 
when he returns, and the evil, fallen, sinful systems of, of a godless world will be vanquished. Now, within that broad point of agreement that Jesus is coming back, uh, Bert, there's there's so many scriptural details, it's kind of hard to parse out completely. I do think one thing that sheds a lot of light is to understand, quote, the end of time in two senses. One is First Thessalonians 4, what I believe does describe the rapture, the church being caught up together in the clouds. Then, yes, that man of perdition, that uh, lawless one, is revealed, the Antichrist, there's tribulation, Christ returns at the Battle of Armageddon, the armies of Satan and the Antichrist are vanquished in just a second, and thus begins a thousand-year millennium, heaven on earth, at which time at the end there is the new heavens and new earth. So, Bert, the end of time is simple yet complex. Christ is coming, but yet it will actually be, I believe, rapture, return, and then eternity proper. I agree with you, and and there's a mixture in this, like the mystery of his first coming. We have the Old Testament, 39 books, and even in Genesis it talks about it's veiled, but it is still talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And it was a mystery. And you had different ones looking at it in different ways. It became clear as we look back on it, as we know Jesus was born of that virgin. And we look back in Isaiah. We look back in Genesis. We look back at these promises and we see them clearly. And now the mystery of his second coming. There's some still some mystery of it, and that's what you said, Alex. There's when you start looking at it, but I think it has the the bigger sections are there: the rapture, tribulation, second coming. Okay, and again, you can look at all of that, but it is the mystery. Don't lose the mystery. Here's the key, Randy: you better be ready because what could happen—the falling away, the lawless one being revealed—could happen very quickly. Okay, if that's what we're waiting on, even, and I don't think that has to wait, but uh, the whole idea is readiness, and that is the theme. Honestly, every theme of the second coming of Jesus Christ is being ready for that time. Uh, that's what it was in Matthew 24, even in Second Thessalonians 4. First, it's that way first. So thank mm-hmm. you for your call. Next, we want to go to Arkansas and talk to Carl. Welcome, Carl. Hey, Bert Nash, thanks for your uh, show. Listen to y'all almost every day, and I'm always uh, encouraged uh, very much to hear y'all uh, expound on God's Word. Uh, have maybe an odd question, but, um, you know, you read in Genesis about the Nephilim, um, and, and then uh, later on uh, when uh, Moses is leading the, uh, leading the children of the Promised Land, you hear about the Rephaim and then the Anakim, and, the, and they're all... I, I think they're all races of giants, but is, is there a difference between them? Are they related? Is one descended from another? I was just always curious about that. Okay. I, with all mm. my heart, Carl, it's a good question. I would say this. They are connected, but they're in different locations. You can look at that. when, If, if you look at it, Alex, you see the different locations where, they would, where you would find them, you know. And even yeah. Goliath would compare as a giant, and he was he is out of Gath. So, mm-hmm. uh I still think they stem from the same group. What about you? Well, it's so funny. Again, you and I were talking about this today, weren't we? About how the you know the Anakim remained in the land. Um, now it's interesting. You got the the Nephilim that there's debate over were they spiritual and physical, and you've got Goliath of Gath who was eight feet six inches tall. Anakim, uh, at least to some degree refers to chain-wearing people, uh, or a chain around the neck. Now, were they big, you know, you know, rough-looking creatures, and they literally wore big old chains around their neck, and intimidating, formidable appearance? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I will say this, more even than their physical stature, Bert, whenever you read about the giants— is the spiritual stature of these. It's always dark, it's always evil, it's always contrary to the true and living God. More than their physical prowess was their spiritual darkness. 
uh, always, isn't it? It really is. And Carl, there again, uh, it's sort of like the seraphim and the cherubim, different, but they're still angels. You catch, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, Alex? Yes. And, and so don't don't let the little phraseology lead you in a whole different, okay, uh, different direction than it should. I, mm-hmm. I want to next go to Ben in Ohio. Welcome, Ben. Welcome. Yeah, good. It's good to be here. Um, I, uh, the past year and a half, one of my good friends is Catholic. We've been doing a podcast together, and they keep telling me all these Catholics about Peter in this passage in Mark 8, at really Matthew 16, where they go at length where he blesses Peter and basically says he's going to be the first pope, or they use that to, to say he's the first pope. Um, so can you speak to that? Because I don't know what exactly to say to that. Okay. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Hmm. Alex, uh, was he talking about little bitty Peter <laughs> or was he talking about the rock of his confession? Or even, I think it's talking about Jesus himself. Uh, exactly. I believe if we could see his hand motions, you would see Jesus upon this rock and he'd have two hands pointing to his chest at that point. What do you say? Yeah, yeah, because in Matthew sixteen sixteen, Peter makes the confession that we all should make, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus says, You're Peter, uh, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but the Father in heaven. And verse 18, I say unto thee, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, the way that... I would say most scholars in history, and certainly Protestant scholars, have understood it is, you know, Peter might be a little rock, but Jesus is the rock. Amen. You know, and so um, let me say this. You'll never find a more uh, pro-Catholic Protestant than myself, and by that I mean that they've done so much over the years to defend a theistic biblical worldview. And first, John 5 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And certainly, um, the majority of Catholic teaching affirms that Jesus is the Son of God. But this is a place where I would disagree respectfully. I do not believe Peter was the first pope, and I don't believe in what's called apostolic succession, that uh, the, the papacy. Uh, makes people automatically apostles. But we believe in what's called the priesthood of the believer, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, The papacy, as we know, it didn't start till several hundred years after Christ and the apostles. Peter was the, the, the keynote speaker at Pentecost. The church, as we know it, was birthed. Uh, we revere what God did in and through the life of Peter, but, but I don't believe that that the papacy has the the seat of Peter or Petrine authority, as they call it. Whoever is a born-again believer in Jesus has all the authority of any other believer, really. Amen. And I don't mean to be a little snarky, but if he were, he was the pope that was married, you know, something, it, it, something well went said, wrong, yeah. you know, because yeah. he had a mother-in-law. That means he had a wife. So, again, not trying to be snarky, but that's, yeah. I just, I can't buy it. Let's go to Mississippi and talk to Anthony. Anthony, welcome. Hello. Good afternoon. I, got, I love you guys' show. Um, calling for the first time. Well, thank you for calling, man. Got a good question yes. for us? Yeah, I hope so. Um, I would like to know, is it okay for you to pay your tithe even if you're not yet saved? Okay. Well, Anthony, I, I don't want to presume anything. You can be saved and then pay your tithe. That's what God wants you to do. He wants a person to know him. The tithe, uh, listen, the church would receive the tithe. Would it do anything for you to God to know? Because a person that has not been obedient in salvation, then Alex, uh, then the tithe, and they're trying to obey, uh, it doesn't add to anything, does it? Well, it really doesn't, and, uh, you know, God bless anyone for their generosity. But, you know, we talk about storehouse tithing, bring the tithes into the storehouse. We also might talk about um, <laughs> saved tithing. And, and let me say this, that sometimes I think people maybe have a Bible on the dashboard of the car or give a little tip to the church 
thinking that it might appease God or somehow be almost like a good luck charm. Um, Really, tithing is something that shows the heart of the believer and the trust, uh, and we, we view God as our source. So if you've never trusted Christ, get saved. I mean, the first thing God wants you to give him is your heart, not your money. God doesn't need our money, although giving is the right thing to do. But above all, give him your heart and be saved, and then you'll know the joy of tithing and offering and growing in your walk with the Lord through giving. Alex, uh, this came in, and Brent was notifying me of it, and I think it's a question. John and Jerry, we'd love to get to you today. Try again tomorrow. We'll get to you. But someone calls in, why does God allow shootings in Christian schools to happen? Alex? Mm. Well, because God offers the right way, but he doesn't force it. And let me just say this. I'm going to be very brief, and Bert, I want you to speak too. Um, there are so many things at play uh, whenever good things happen or whenever bad things happen. Yesterday, that shooting in Nashville at Covenant Christian School, that was an evil tragedy. I mean, it was sad and it was tragic, but it was evil and demonic. And that that shooter who, uh, you know, already in the news, they're spinning it and they're saying, well, you know, this person is the victim. No, that shooter is not the victim. That shooter is evil and was a tool in the hand of Satan. Bert, we've got to remember, and I'll be very brief, but we've got to remember what this world is and isn't. This world is not heaven yet. This world is a place where human beings can experience the grace of God by putting our faith in Jesus, uh, people that reject truth um, and choose to live without Christ, And sadly, some choose to live without Christ in this world and in the next. Um, They're lost, like this person was, undoubtedly. Bert, God wants a relationship with us. And in a world where salvation is offered but not forced, there are bad things that people choose to do, and that is called sin. But Christ is coming back, and sin will be eradicated one day. In the meantime, Put your trust in the Savior, and you'll be delivered from sin. We are not shielded from all evil. In church, in a Christian school, in our life, it rains on the just and the unjust. Is rain good? Yes. Is rain bad? It can be too much. Right here in Mississippi, we had the tornadoes to go through, and I just want to tell you, I know some godly people whose homes were destroyed and lives were taken. But God is Lord. And one day, Alex, you said it, that is going to come to an end, and we're going to be in his presence, and we're going to be with him. That day is coming. You want to make sure you're ready. If you need help, call this number, 1-800-NEED-HIM. They're ready to help you to come to know Christ as Savior. Well, tomorrow we'll continue in Mark chapter 8 and finishes up. Until then, serve the Lord and tell everybody about Jesus. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.